Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. So if you guys are taking notes today, I titled my message, Protecting the Body of Christ. Protecting the Body of Christ. And I feel like we're in a season right now in the church and in our world where believers, uh, churchgoers, people who are a part of the church need to start taking on the mantle and responsibility of protecting the body of Christ. Uh, Before I jump in though, I wanna ask you this. How many of you guys have ever wondered if you were a flight or fight person? You ever want, how many of you guys think you're a fight person? When, when, When crisis comes, you're a fighter. How many of you guys are more of a flight person? Let's be honest. There's only like four of you. Okay, you're, I mean, all these guys are like, not me. When crisis comes, how many, let's be honest, how many of you kind of think when a real crisis comes, your first thought is run? <laughs> I always thought I was a fight person, and I still am to some degree. But I found out, honestly, it was about eight or nine years ago now, I went to Africa on a missions trip with a team from our church, and my dad was with me, and we went to a safari for the last day and a half of the trip before we came home. We were in the middle of the African plains, and we were in this tent camp, um, staying in in this kind of like hotel tent kind of thing, and and there was um, an electric fence that went around the property. And so we went way out one night after dinner, and it was probably a half mile walk out to the electric fence perimeter. And I remember like kind of joking about how it kind of felt like Jurassic Park, you know, kind of thing. Because you could look out beyond the electric fence, and you could see eyes in the darkness as you would shine a flashlight looking at you. And I'm like, this is a little bit unnerving, right? And so I kind of made this joke. I said, remember in Jurassic Park when the electricity went out, ha, ha, ha. Like, what would, that, what, what would it be like if that happened to us? And all three of us, it was me and my dad and one of our board members from our church, all three of us were like, I mean, I wouldn't be afraid. I mean, there's still a fence. I wouldn't be afraid. I'm not joking. Less than one minute later, all the electricity went out. In that moment, all the eyes that I had seen out there as I'm flashing my flashlight, the eyes start getting closer. In my entire life, I thought, I'm a fight person. I'm a fight person. But when the electricity went out, I screamed the most high-pitched scream I have ever screamed in my life, and I started running. And the only thing that was going through my mind as I was running is, I just have to run faster than my dad, and I'll live. Because he'll get eaten. <laughs> so I get... <laughs> I'm great, right? I, I make a wonderful father and, and husband. So I, I get, we get all the way back, and my dad also, right before we went on the trip, had just had knee surgery. And so I get all the way back, the electricity comes back on, and my dad is like limping. He's like, what were you doing? I was like, Dad, I don't know. All I wanted to do was survive. And he was like, what about me? And I was like, I don't know. I'm a flight person, I guess. So now when people ask me that question, I don't know what I am. I get in the middle of a crisis. You don't know what you're going to get with me. But that day, I did not step up to become who I thought I was meant to be in that moment. There's a point in scripture, I tell you that story because there's a point in scripture. It was the most critical moment, really up until this point in the gospel, the most critical moment of Christianity when you're looking at a timeline and the people that you believed who were most meant to step up and the most meant to fight and not to run and have flight, you would think it was the disciples because the moment I'm talking about is the moment Jesus died on the cross. When the crisis of all crises came, 
The people you thought that would never abandon Jesus, never walk away, never be in fear because they saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, do all the miracles. And Jesus was doing in that moment, dying. He was dying, doing exactly what he told them he was going to do, yet it still caught them off guard. And the moment Jesus died, his best friends, the people most loyal to him, the pastors, if you will, of the day, ran. But there was someone, though, that didn't run in that critical moment who saw the body of Christ dead on the cross in a vulnerable state, this person that still believed when the body of Christ was in a vulnerable state that revival or resurrection could still come. And this person, his name is Joseph of Arimathea, and he is an obscure character, if you will, or person. I hate saying the term character when it comes to the Bible. They're real people. He's an obscure person in Scripture, but he was not one of the pastors. He was not one of the apostles. He was not one of the disciples as you know them. Joseph of Arimathea. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 48. And I want to read this uh, passage to you. This is right as Jesus is dying on the cross or has just died. And it says this, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their chest. And all his acquaintances, talking about Jesus, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Watching these things. I think that's powerful. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the, of the council, which is the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. What that's talking about is when he was on the Sanhedrin, he did not consent to the Sanhedrin's vote to condemn Jesus to death. Okay? And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Here's what's interesting about this obscure man in scripture. This is the only time he's ever mentioned. He was not mentioned before and he is never mentioned again. But for some reason, he's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Something very important is happening in this short little passage, in this short little time, because like what I read you, all of Jesus' acquaintances and the ones who said they loved him were either gone or watching this spectacle from a distance. Watching the spectacle from a distance, and the body of Christ was on the cross in a vulnerable state. Matthew's account, though, tells us a little bit more, a different angle on Joseph of Arimathea. He tells us that it's not a random tomb that Joseph got for the body of Jesus. It was his own tomb that he had saved money for his entire life. This was a very expensive family um, purchase that he had made for his family and burial. Mark's gospel tells us that he went boldly to Pilate. Remember, Pilate is the Roman governor at the time who sentenced Jesus to death ultimately, and Joseph went boldly to him to ask for the body of Christ. John tells us that he was also accompanied doing these things uh, with a man, by a man named Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus, if you remember, is the man going back to the famous story in John 3, where we get John 3.16 from. He, Jesus is having a conversation with this Jewish leader, um, also a member of the council, and he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night to have a conversation about who he really is. So what we know is this, Nicodemus got saved that day, but he's a secret disciple. And also Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple, a, a Christian in the shadows. Well, what is a secret disciple? A secret disciple is someone when it's just one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, when they're in a room full of Christians, they, they're, they're a Christian. I'm raising my hands in worship, I go to church, but a secret disciple is someone that leaves the gathering, leaves the safety of numbers in Christianity and goes back to work, back to school, and um, no one really knows who they are, what they believe. A clear line has not been drawn in the sand. They don't know who these people really are. So here's what we know about Joseph of Arimathea. We know from scripture and looking at all four accounts, he's a businessman. He was a community leader. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin was just a ruling council, like a city council, if you will. Some religious people were on there, but also there were just people who had influence in the community. He was friends with Nicodemus and he ultimately gave Jesus his tomb. And like I mentioned, he was a secret disciple of Jesus. But this story of this obscure man in scripture um, shows us that just because you feel like your life might be obscure or maybe you've been in the shadows, there are certain times that God will call you out of the shadows to step into the light to accomplish something that even the most devout leaders and pastors and people you thought were gonna be the heroes, when they back off, God's saying it's time for you to step up. So this, the whole point of this story was that he protected the body of Christ at its most vulnerable state. And, if you've been going to church very long, you've probably heard the church being called the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, together you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of that body. When we come together, when we gather, we are the body of Christ. So when we think about the literal physical body of Jesus on that cross being vulnerable, but today the church is the body of Christ, I would say, and we've had conversations and you look at statistics around our country and around the world, right now in this moment, overall, the body of Christ is in a vulnerable state. People don't know what they believe right now, a lot of people, about how important is the gathering. How important is it for me to get my family? So many people have gotten used to not gathering. So many people have lowered the priorities of church down the list of priorities in their life and they've compartmentalized it and they've made it something like extracurricular activities for their kids. If we have time, we go. If there's not a game on, we go. If it makes sense, we go. If we're not too tired, if we didn't have a late night, we go. But the gathering is supposed to be so important. So right now, right now, the body of Christ is in a vulnerable state. But what I think is kind of ironic about this though, now and then when Jesus was on the cross, the body of Christ was vulnerable back then, but it was also on the brink of resurrection. And, and the people that believed Jesus were kind of anticipating that the revival, the literal revival of his body was going to happen. But in that present moment, he was vulnerable. In that present moment, in this present moment, the body of Christ is vulnerable and our nation is at a crossroads. So here's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna go through a few things, answering the question, how do we become more like Joseph of Arimathea? How do we step up as just everyday 
normal Christians and churchgoers, how do we step up and protect the body of Christ? You guys ready? Let's fly through these. Number one is this, through decisive courage. Decisive courage. <clears throat> Mark 15, 43 in the NIV says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. So there's this image of him just like busting in to where Pilate was, which meant, okay, which meant there was some kind of leverage that Joseph of Arimathea had. Not, every, not any normal guy could just go in and get the audience of Pilate, the Roman governor. But Mark 15, 43 in the ESV says this, instead of went boldly, says who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. So it's giving us this image that he had to muster up some boldness. I love this because when the Bible talks about courage, almost every single time the Bible mentions the, the word courage, what it says is it's something we have to take. It's not something that's bestowed upon us like a blessing. Every single time you go back to the book of Joshua, you go to the story of the Israelites taking the promised land. God tells Joshua, take courage. Take courage. It's something that you don't naturally have. Being decisive for the kingdom of God does not come naturally. It's something you have to look at and say, the time is now and I'm going to be decisive and I have to take courage. What does the word decisive mean? The word decisive means, what it means in the dictionary is this, settling an issue, producing a definite result, settling an issue. I, I, I love this because so many believers, so many believers we're in a season like this with the church and Christianity. Guys, and I get it. There are so many things going on in your lives. I get it. There is so much going on. But what happens sometimes is we've never gotten our families to a place or we as individuals to a place where we have settled the issue. This is who our family is going to be. This is what we're going to do on Sunday. This is what we're going to do through the week. This is what we're committed to as a family through prayer. This is what we're committed to. We are settling the issue. And whether it's finances or your schedule, if you don't budget your money, if you don't schedule your time, you never settle the issue. And time manages you and money manages you, right? In the same way, it's like this. If we don't step out with decisive courage with the kingdom of God, the world will manage you instead of us managing the world. How can we be decisive? How can we be decisive? We have to answer the question simply this. Who or what am I the most? What am I the most? And that might sound odd, but I want you to write it down if you're taking notes. What am I the most? Picture Joseph of Arimathea watching Jesus die on the cross. He's looking around going, where's Peter right now? Peter is nowhere to be found. Peter has just denied Jesus three times. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He's gone. Where are the other disciples? Gone. Where are all of the people that followed him? Where are all the people that were waving palm branches on Sunday morning on Palm Sunday? Where are they? They were watching at a distance. They were fearful. And Joseph of Arimathea, who had lived his Christian life in the shadows, is now seeing the body of Christ on the cross. And the people closest to him at the beginning of this crisis are now gone. Many of you know people at the beginning of this crisis in our country that were, they, they had a foundation in Christianity. They were the core of the church. Some of you, or if not all of you, know people who now, in his vulnerable state, they're gone. So Joseph is looking at this and he starts remembering what Jesus had said in the stories of I'm going to die, 
but three days later, I'm coming back to life. I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm coming back to life. But Joseph is looking at this story, and he's knowing, but I know what Romans do to the bodies of people who die on the cross. They take them off, and they throw them in a pit, and if they don't burn them, they throw them into the pit, and the wild animals come, and they rip the bodies apart. And Joseph is looking at this going, I know he's God, but for some reason, God chooses to get his people engaged into building the kingdom of God and gives us responsibility. So I know God is sovereign. I know Jesus is God, but his body is still vulnerable and all the people that can do something about it are gone. So Joseph has to make this decision. What am I the most? Am I a member of the Sanhedrin the most or am I a believer in Jesus Christ the most? Am I an influential member in the community the most? Or am I a believer in Jesus Christ the most? And that day he was at a crossroads and he had to make a decision. And I think it's time for us today. I know this is what I feel like God has been speaking to me and our church. This is the time where we have to ask ourselves that question and decide. What's interesting is uh, 700 years before Joseph was born, there was already a prophecy um, about Jesus dying on the cross and about this day. It's really interesting. And these are things, this is a, from the book of Isaiah and Joseph being a Jewish man would have memorized this passage growing up, not knowing that this prophecy would have been about him. Isaiah 53, nine says, he had done no wrong talking about Jesus and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. The Bible describes Joseph as a rich man just because he had money. Back then, if you either had money or you had nothing. There was no middle class. So he was described as a rich man. Isn't it interesting that 700 years before this day, God in his sovereignty knew there would be a day where a man in the shadows would have to come out of the shadows into the light and do what the, what the disciples and the apostles wouldn't even do. Could this season and this day be that for you? You all, all of us, have a divine purpose and placement on our lives. You are in Rhode Island for a reason, for such a time as this right now. But what is your purpose? What is your placement? And no, it's not by accident. It's not by accident. Number two, how do we become more like Joseph of Arimathea? Number two, through committed companionship. Committed companionship. Remember this, um, the book of John, the book of John tells us that Joseph was met by, I remember the man Nicodemus, another secret disciple of Jesus. John 19, 38 through 40 says, So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So here's what's interesting. This is what this, is what this scripture is teaching us, that God will bring the right people into your life to cover what you don't currently have so you can still accomplish protecting the body of Christ. What I love about God, what I love about the New Testament is the system of God does not allow for there to be one hero that can save the church. Every person has something very specific to offer, but every person has a limit on what they can do alone. So only through committed companionship of gathering together, being committed to each other, can we celebrate what each other bring to the plate to anticipate revival and resurrection of the church to protect the body of Christ. Joseph, although God prompted him to step out of the shadows, could not have gone through the entire process by himself. He couldn't have prepared Jesus' body for burial by only having a tomb. 
He had money, but he didn't have time to go get what he needed. But Nicodemus didn't have a tomb, but he had the burial supplies. So Nicodemus joined with Joseph, came together, and they could accomplish protecting the body of Christ. But it was through committed companionship. And I tell you that because it's really interesting. You can't have companionship without commitment. But some reason in the church world, we know that in sports, we know that in work, we know that in, in um, separate entities and 501c3s and nonprofits, we, we get all that out there. But for some reason in church, we expect church to work without commitment, without companionship. It should just work. Nothing else can work without team and commitment to each other, but this should, right? But I wanna ask you, I wanna challenge you, are you committed to people in this place, in this house, to the church, because we can't accomplish what we're meant to accomplish without committed companionship, committed companionship. I want you to think about this. The other disciples earlier on probably scrutinized the secret disciples. I want you to think about how interesting that is. Can you imagine being Peter? He's he's a little hot-headed, right? And the other disciples, they saw, they heard about Nicodemus coming at night, Somewhere along the way, they heard about Joseph of Arimathea on the Sanhedrin, and so was Nicodemus. And somewhere along the way, they had to have, because we're human and so were they, had to have had some kind of conversation like this. Jesus, why aren't you getting on to those guys? Because right before they got to Jerusalem, Peter says something to Jesus about, I don't want you to go to the cross, and Jesus calls him Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. And Peter's like, wow, bad day, right? (laughs) And so can you imagine, though, being Peter, you're going, Jesus, you're saying, get thee behind me, Satan, to me but you're allowing Nicodemus and and Joseph of Arimathea to say secret disciples. You can imagine the disciples that were completely committed in the light were probably talking a little bit bad about the secret disciples going, well, if they would just get committed and if they would just do these things. But when the time came for crisis, the people, many of the people who are at the center were nowhere to be found. And we're in that same season right now. So this is why I believe God is calling the Joseph of Arimathea's and the Nicodemus's out of the shadows now to step up to the plate and protect the body of Christ. Number three, the third way we can become more like Joseph is through faith-filled generosity. Faith-filled generosity. And generosity is huge. When you look at building the kingdom of God, and I loved what Pastor Jordan was just talking about when he was taking the offering, talking about generosity, and I love the scripture he used. When it comes to this story, John 19, 38 through 39, again, I wanna read this to you again. It says, so he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This is a, an extraordinarily huge amount of money that was involved in this. It was what most scholars believe well beyond a year's wages for the average person of that day. This was a huge sacrifice for Nicodemus. It was a huge sacrifice for Joseph of Arimathea. In today's standards, this tomb translated all the way through the centuries into today would have been worth several hundred thousand dollars to us. That in an instance, Joseph is looking at the cross and he's having to make a decision. Is Jesus' body going to go into this pit or am I going to give him what I've been saving for my whole life? What am I going to do for the body of Christ right now? What am I going to do? Be generous or no? What am I going to do? Is my life going to be about me or is it going to be about him? What am I going to do? And he decided. 
And you might be thinking, well, I mean, he knew that Jesus was coming back to life three days later, so this was just going to be a short-term, you know, rental, right? Like, this was just short-term. But they were human just like us. When Jesus was dead, if they all believed that Jesus was coming back to life, all those guys would have been waiting at the tomb. They would have been waiting at the tomb that Easter morning, but they were not. They were in the city hiding. People didn't believe that Jesus was coming back to life. And in that moment, Joseph of Arimathea might have hoped it was true, but he did not fully believe it necessarily, but he still gave, which is based off of faith. He gave based off of faith. He saw the divine opportunity of his life to be useful for Jesus. Isn't it interesting how often we say or when we're praying or even in church, God, use me. There are worship songs that say, God, use me. God, use me. God, use me. And then as soon as, you know, church, use me. Hey, Pastor Jordan, use me. And then as soon as God starts using you or the church starts using you, it turns into, they're using me. Isn't that weird? God, here I am. Use me. Stop using me. You know, like, well, which one is it? Joseph could have had that mentality, but he didn't. He meant it when he said it. God, use me and what I have. And I'm not going to throw a temper tantrum three days later. I, I'm just I'm going to believe it. If, if you want to use me, use me. I'm a vessel. Use me. But opportunity, the opportunities of a lifetime when it comes to the kingdom of God always involve sacrifice. Always. You cannot do something great for God without bringing a sacrifice. You can't do it. Because it's the sacrifice of self that allows you to be used by God. It's the decreasing of us, like John the Baptist, so he can increase. I decrease so he can increase, but decrease involves sacrifice. What did Joseph sacrifice? He sacrificed ritual and routine. It was the weekend of the Passover. He should have been multiple other places. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was also a Jewish leader as much as he was a community leader. He probably had a family that was waiting on him to prepare, it was the day of preparation, to prepare for the Passover, to get the Passover lamb, to prepare for the meal. All these things were happening and it was a deep-rooted part of who he was. All the routines, all the rituals in life, all of the sports, all of the things going on in the schools, all of the things going on at work, all of the, the extracurricular activities and the hobbies, all of those were there and Joseph probably kept doing those long after this time. But in that moment, in the critical moment, he knew what his priority was. It was the body of Christ. It was the body of Christ. So he was willing to sacrifice his schedule, sacrifice his priorities, his ritual and routine to protect the body of Christ. The, the second thing he sacrificed was time. It took a lot of time that day, a lot of time. He went to Pilate, which was not gonna be a short amount of time. Then he had to go get the body off the, cry, off, the, off the cross. Then he had to prepare the body with Nicodemus. Then they had to go to the tomb. This was hours and hours and hours. This was time. Yeah. I, wanted, I want you to, I do the same thing, guys, and I'm a pastor, so I'm not criticizing anybody. But isn't it interesting? Once a church service, service gets to an hour, hour and 15 minutes, we start going, you know, like, what, what's happening? You know, like, we're like, okay, is he wrapping up? Is he not? You know, he's on point three. Does he have 10 points? Like, where are we going with this, right? You know, but isn't it interesting, though, that how little time we give the body of Christ and then we expect maximum results? We, we, we want a revival in the land. We want our schools to change. We want our city to change. We want all these things to change. But I just, all I've got time for 
is an hour and 20 minute service on Sunday. Hopefully you understand, Pastor, that's just, that's all I have time for. That, that's, that we have way too many things going on. What that means is not that you're a horrible person, but what it means is you haven't gotten to the place where you've stepped out of the shadows and stepped into the light and realized the body of Christ is more than going to something once a week. It's something to be a part of every day of our lives. Yeah, so he sacrificed ritual and routine, time, reputation. This is a huge part of stepping out of the shadows is reputation. It doesn't mean that you lose your reputation, but it does mean 100% of the times it will be altered. And I think that people have to, have to just realize that. There is no way in today's world you can make it known somehow over time in your workplace, if you work outside of the church, there is no way when everyone finds out you're a Christian that your reputation will be the same after that as it was before that. There is no way. So we have to wrap our minds around that. It doesn't mean that your reputation is going to be just completely tarnished and gone, and, you know, it, it, but it could be. I don't know. But I'm just telling you, the faster we can wrap our minds around, once everyone knows, they might act a little bit different around me. They, they, they might. I'll be super honest. Like when I go out into the community, our, all of our kids play sports. We have four kids. And the moment some, you, know, you get in that conversation with someone, Jordan, I know you know this. Eventually, someone asks you what you do for a living. So I'm like, oh, this conversation's going great. They'll even, you know, they're, they're cussing a little bit. You know, they're drinking their beer, all whatever. And then they'll go, finally we get to the point of the conversation where they go, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh, 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 yeah, you know, yeah. You know, I was raised Catholic, and I'm, I'm this, and, you know, you know, all these kind of things. And, you know, I don't normally cuss. I don't even know what was happening, pastor. You know, father, I don't know. And I'm like, no, they don't call me father. They just call me pastor. I'm good, you know. No, yeah, you're good. You know, it's like, but that's, that's what we do, right? But when, it, when, when it's the real thing, we, we step out into the light. And it's not like you have to walk up on stand on a box in your workplace and go, everybody, I'm going to be that annoying Christian. That's me. No, it's not that. But it's just through slowly through conversation where people just know I'm constant. I'm going to be the constant here. I, I, I believe what the Bible says to be true. I'm going to love you even though we disagree. I'm not going to be the annoying Christian, but I am going to be a Christian, right? Reputation, yeah. Yeah. So he sacrificed ritual and routine, time, reputation, and the last thing is he sacrificed money. He just did. Now, when this part comes into the church world for a lot of, a lot of people, this is the tough one when it comes to church involvement is the money aspect of church involvement. It's not a requirement where you walk in and go, I'm going to be analyzing all of your money, and it's not like that. But I want you to think about this. Everything worth anything in your life takes the investment of money. Everything. Everything. We don't even think about when our kid jumps into a sport and there's fundraising going on and we've got to pay a certain amount. We don't even think about it. Well, that's normal. I mean, it's totally normal for the Red Cross and for the Salvation Army to say, hey, we need, we need people to donate. We need people to be a part of this financially. Well, of course. When you're checking out at Walgreens or a pharmacy, when someone says, do you want to round up to the nearest dollar for breast cancer or whatever it might be? Well, yeah, of course. Of course, of course, of course. A pastor talks about generosity. This thing should operate without money, right? We, we should be able to go into the community and bless single moms and bless people that can't eat for Thanksgiving. We should be able to do all of that with all of their sacrifice, not mine, right? See what I mean? But it, it's, a, it's something we have to reverse because there is so much joy that comes in giving to the body of Christ. 
when I look at this church and how I know your pastors and the ministry that you guys are doing around the community, around the region, this church is the kind of soil that you wanna plant the seed of finances into. This is the kind of soil that produces fruit. These are the kind of leaders and pastors. But what we say to our church is this, to truly protect the body of Christ, to advance the body of Christ. If we're wanting revival and resurrection to come to the body of Christ, to have the real consistent ministry we need, what that takes is real consistent giving. Real consistent giving produces real consistent ministry. What makes you most proud about this church and the conversations you have in your workplace are the things this church is doing, right? It can only do those things because there are people in this room that have sacrificed. There are Joseph of Arimathea's in this room over the years that have sacrificed. There are Nicodemuses in here that have sacrificed. And then there are people who I believe are about to step out of the shadows and say, I wanna be a part of that kind of sacrifice. I wanna sacrifice for the body of Christ. I want to start somewhere with financial giving. I don't wanna have a tipping mentality. I wanna have an investment mentality. I don't wanna tip my church for doing a good job. I want to invest in my church so we can keep expanding the kingdom of God. If the worship team could go ahead and come up and begin to play. I wanna wrap up with this. I wanna ask you that question. What does the body of Christ need from you today? What do you have to offer? You might be somebody that thinks, I have something very real specific to offer. Jump in. Jump in. It may not be the very specific way you want to offer that gifting, but what's so amazing is there are so many different places to get involved and to engage in. You have something to offer in multiple areas, but you also might be somebody sitting here today thinking, I don't have anything to offer. I don't know the Bible I don't, it's a little bit intimidating to me. Let me just tell you something. This is how God works. Remember I told you 700 years before Joseph of Arimathea stepped into that role, God had already ordained it. He didn't even know that scripture he had memorized as a, as a boy was about him. God has ordained since the beginning of time, hundreds, thousands of years ago, for this moment, for this region, for this church, for you to bring something something to the kingdom of God to protect and expand and to enhance the body of Christ. He, he's called you to do something beyond coming and sitting and worshiping and leaving. He's called you to do something. And the purpose that you're looking for in your life, the fulfillment you're looking for is found in that. You know, Jesus actually said, my food is doing the will of my father, serving my father, serving my father's house, his food, his sustenance. He said that. If it was his food, his sustenance, it has to be ours. So many people are looking for fulfillment. They're searching for purpose. They're empty. No matter what raise they get, what car they drive, what house they get, how much money comes in or money goes out, there's still a gap. The gap is, I believe, possibly not stepping into that moment where God is con calling you and prompting you to leverage what you have to protect the body of Christ. At the bottom line, that's what Joseph did that day. He's in the shadows looking at Jesus on that cross as he died, and he looked around and he said, what do I have to leverage? Well, for some reason, he had access to Pilate. And he looked at the other disciples and go, they don't have that access. I have that access. But if I walk into that room and demand from Pilate, the body of Christ, I don't know what's going to happen. Wow. 
but I'm the only one who has that leverage. What leverage do you have that Jordan, your pastor, doesn't have in the community? The staff here, the pastors here, the church doesn't have. What can you offer to where it might cost you something? But God's calling you to step out of the shadows and into the light. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.